This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseen, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome back. Leadership in Action, Sirius XM, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeff Klein. That's Ann Greenhall. Greenhall. Ooh. <laughs> wow, that was, we didn't even plan that, folks. That's right. That's the kind of leadership and teamwork that happened <laughs> right. here in the radio studio. And this week, we are playing back portions of our 22nd annual leadership conference that was held in June. And coming up in just a couple minutes, we're going to hear from Sam Walker, um, who has published another really interesting book. The book is called The Captain Class, Mm -hmm. and his presentation was called Stop Picking the Wrong Leaders, How Unheralded Captains Build Extraordinary Sports Teams. And what you'll hear is he starts off by talking about ambition. So when people set out to undertake a project that is extremely ambitious, something that is daunting and difficult and unprecedented, but that just might change the world, what's the first thing that they do? Do they write a business plan? Do they start looking for angel investors? Do they come up with a a flashy hashtag, right? No. The first thing that they always do is build a team. The thing that brings about all positive change in in the history of civilization are teams, collections of people. It might be a a great democracy. It might be a, a beautiful skyscraper, a cure for disease, or those products, those great phones that you all have in your pockets that are all on silent, of course. Um, those things are all monuments to teams and teamwork. Uh, they're products of a great collective effort. So teams are essential and very important. Now, I want you all to take a minute here to think about all the teams that you've been on. And not just teams in sports, but teams in business. Could be in the military, an election campaign, the PTA. You know, a family can be a team in some ways. I want you to think about all of these groups, all of these teams, and I want you to think about Ask yourself, how many of those teams were truly exceptional, extraordinary? And by extraordinary, I mean that people are still talking about that team and what it accomplished. It sets some kind of standard for achievement that everyone is still chasing. It just worked perfectly from the beginning and and was able to maintain that success. How many of you, I want to see a show of hands, how many of you feel like you've been on a truly extraordinary team? Wow. That's a lot. That's the Wharton difference right here. <laughs> Something's going on very good here. Oh, that's a lot. That's, a, that's a, more than usual. All right. So let's look at the other side of this. And the other side of this is think about all the teams you've been on that were just fundamentally broken. Right? And, and I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about a team that might have had all the potential in the world and maybe no obstacles whatsoever to its achievement, but that just couldn't get the job done for whatever reason. It was unlucky, it was unfortunate, it was dysfunctional and useless. How many of you have been on a lousy team? I know I have. Okay, there you go, right. Well, all right, those proportions are about normal. And if you look at professional sports, you'll see that in the, in the, over the course of any season, most of the teams, by their records, will kind of cluster in the middle. I mean, you've got probably a 53% chance of just being mediocre, right? 
uh, only about a 20% chance of being good. But that's sports. Okay, what about business? I mean, business is not a zero-sum game. You know, teams don't play each other every night. There's not always a winner and a loser. So there's no reason why a larger percentage of business teams can't be great. But the research that's out there suggests it's not the case. In fact, most studies suggest that only about 15% of people who are on teams will identify those teams as, uh, will self-identify those teams as being excellent. So what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that great teams are rare. They're unusual. They're hard to find. And the question that that begs is why? Why are teams, good teams, so hard to find? Well, there's one, uh, there's one thing here that may go a long way to explaining why. And this is an experiment. So in 1911, a French agricultural engineer named Maximilian Ringelmann conducted an experiment where he had his students pull on a rope. And he had them do it uh, as individuals and then collectively. And he measured the force that they applied on the rope. Right. So his hypothesis was that with every person he added the pulling group, there would be a multiplying impact on the force. Right. And it seemed perfectly logical. It's a logical thing to think. Well, he conducted the experiment, and to his incredible surprise, he was completely wrong. In fact, the reverse was true. With every person he added the pulling group, the average force that each person exerted on the rope actually fell. So this is not what he expected. Now, what does this mean? It means that it's human nature to work harder on a task by ourselves than we do collectively. And that goes a long way to explaining why teams have trouble and why teams aren't always great. Because it's human nature. The act of joining a team actually diminishes us in some ways and encourages us in a basic way to work less hard than we would by ourselves. So this phenomenon is not a one-time thing. This experiment has been replicated hundreds and hundreds of times. And there's even a term for it. It's called social loafing, which I think is a great, uh, is a great term. But uh, this is something, it's a real phenomenon, and, and it's, uh, it's something that teams have to cope with. So let's go back to the original question I asked you at the beginning, which is, what about those extraordinary teams? What is it about them? Because not only did they overcome this natural tendency to work less hard, the social loafing, but they also took it a step further. There was some force there, something that allowed them to achieve something no one else had achieved before. What is that force? What is that tailwind that allows them to do that? And that's really the, the question that started animating me toward writing this book. Now, um, as a sports writer at the Journal and editor for many years, I had the great fortune of getting to spend a lot of time with some of the great dynasties of the era, really some of the greatest teams of all time, Michael Jordan's Chicago Bulls, Tom Brady's New England Patriots, Barcelona, the great uh, Spanish soccer team, and uh, the Yankees of the, of the late 1990s. I mean, these were true dynasties and incredible teams. And whenever I had a minute alone with one of the athletes and one of the leaders of these teams, I always asked them the same question. And it was the simplest question I could think of, which is why? Why this team? Why is this team so much better than every other team? And the answer surprised me, really surprised me, because you know, they would give me these kind of responses, and, and you know, they were mostly pat, cliche things that you would expect them to say, right? Um, but mostly they kind of shrugged. And what was clear to me is that they hadn't really given it a lot of thought. They really hadn't thought about why this team was good. It, 
There was something very natural about being on one of these extraordinary teams. It wasn't like an alien had inhabited their bodies and was moving for them. It just felt normal. It felt like everything was going the way that it should. Um, Tom Brady, I asked Tom Brady this question, and Tom Brady said the same thing that he always says, which is, you do your job so that everybody else can do their job. There's no big secret to it, right? Yeah, Tom, sure. You know, eight, five Super Bowls, eight consecutive AFC Championship games, a perfect season, a supermodel wife. Just do your job, right? And these things will come to you too, right? Anyway, so I thought this was ridiculous and really simplistic. I just thought this was something that you say to get a reporter out of your cubicle, right? But, you know, what happened was when I talked to uh, different kinds of teams, I realized there might be something to this because I would talk to lousy teams. I mean, and when I say lousy, I'm talking about teams that had high expectations and a lot of talent but just couldn't put it together. And I would ask them the same question, why? Why is this team so lousy? And I mean, I had some, I had some awkward encounters after asking that question, but, um, <laughs> but usually the response was, was completely different, which is like, it was like, pull up a chair, man. You know, sit down, you got half an hour. And I mean, honestly, they would go on and on and on about all the things that were wrong with the team, how it was broken in every way, and how all the remedies they tried had failed. And listening to this, one thing came across very clearly which is like, it's hard to suck. <laughs> I mean, it's not fun. It's not easy either. It's, it's, it goes against your instincts. It's really frustrating and difficult to be on a lousy team. And that was clear from listening to the talk. So here's this weird situation where, okay, I'm talking about the greatest teams I'll ever see in my life, and they feel like being on a great team is really simple. But Here's these lousy teams, which are a dime a dozen. I mean, lousy teams are everywhere, right? And being on those teams is really stressful, difficult, and challenging for people. So it all seemed kind of backwards. And I started thinking, you know, maybe, maybe Tom Brady's right. Maybe there is something simple. There's a simple reason that these elite dynasties, these teams that sustain success, are able to keep it up for so long. What is that thing? What is that force? Maybe it's actually sitting right in front of our faces. So, that's what animated me to write the book. And uh, I didn't realize what was ahead of me because the first thing I needed to do was, I, all right, I need a study sample, right? I need to, I, here's a list of the greatest teams of all time. I needed a list. So I Google greatest teams of all time. You should try it. It's, uh, it's kind of a disaster. I mean, there's a lot of lists out there, but you know, they're very parochial. You know, if it's in England, they're all English teams. They're all soccer teams. You know, here, it's maybe just one sport or it's, it's traditional sports. Or, uh, the metrics they use are silly. I mean, that you can't use winning percentage for every single kind of team in, in the world. You can't do it. So I was very disappointed with what I found. I realized I had to do it myself. And the only way to do it myself was to look at every single team in the history of sports since the 1880s all over the world. So I put, <laughs> I put this spreadsheet together. It had more than 25,000 teams on it, uh, every team you know, in a major team sport. And, uh, I knew I had to obviously start whittling this down. There's no algorithmic, statistical way to do this. So I said, all right, well, I'm just going to start saying, here's some rules that I would apply that any team that's one of the greatest teams in history would have to meet, right? And the first one was I knew I wanted to study 
sustained excellence. I, I didn't care about a team that maybe won one championship or two. You know, you can get very lucky for a long time, but I decided to set the bar at four years. I think at four years, it's almost impossible to, to chalk it up to luck. That's a culture. That's a team that's doing something right. Okay, that was the first one. The other two were, they had to play at the absolute highest level of competition in the world. This ruled out college sports in the US, for example, some leagues. Uh, another one was, you know, they had to play, played against the other great teams of the time. So a lot of teams from the early 20th century that just didn't travel much fell out. So the final filter was the toughest. And that filter was, look, if you're going to say you're one of the greatest teams of all time, you better be the greatest team in your sport, right? And uh, so I decided that only teams that had done something unique would qualify. So whether it's a string of championships or titles or, or wins, um, it had, there had to be an exceptional, unequaled quality about these teams. So, all right, I applied these rules, these four rules, to 25,000 teams over 150 years, and how many do you think were left? If you've read the book, you know, but 17, that's it. There were only 17 teams that met these criteria, and I, you know, some of them I had never heard of. I mean, I never heard of them. I knew nothing about them. Some of them were very, um, were, were teams I knew well, and so most of them were not. And uh, I was very surprised by the list. So, okay, well, these teams, and we could debate this all day, and, and obviously the greatest teams of all time is something that um, can get you thrown out of a bar pretty quickly, uh, <laughs> as I can tell from personal experience. Uh, but that's not the point. The point was, okay, here's my sample. If there's some quality, there's some force that makes teams achieve incredible things, it's going to exist on this list. It's got to be here, right? Because these teams are just unequivocally, no qualifications, great dynasties, okay? This was my sample. So I started looking at these teams and looking at what they might have in common, and I started the basic things. I started with talent. Right? Maybe they just had more talent, but quickly I realized that wasn't the case. A lot of these teams had, you know, above average or even in some cases kind of medium levels of talent. I thought brilliant tactics, right? They just outthought and outmaneuvered everyone, but no, majority of these teams really didn't didn't stand out in that regard. Some of them did, not not all of them. Uh, I thought money, management, you know, something like that. And, and again, I mean, you know, we have teams from Cuba and Hungary, and you know, money was not the thing and neither was enlightened management. So what was it? I thought it would be coaching, right? I, I thought coaching was the thing. I really thought that um, th that was the, gonna be the secret ingredient. But the biggest surprise of all for me was that only one of the coaches of these teams arrived at the beginning of the streak, or was at the beginning of the streak, had a reputation for being a genius. All of the others had either been fired from the previous job had a, a losing record for their career, had very little coaching experience, or in some cases, none. No coaching experience at all. In fact, a couple of the coaches on these teams actually were fired or left in the middle of these streaks and they kept winning. So I'm not saying coaches aren't important, I'm saying it, they're not that thing I was looking for. There was no consistency there. That wasn't the magic, the magic potion. So what was it? Well, in the end, there was only one thing. One thing they all had in common, and it was clear as a bell. It's the, most, it's the most clear pattern I've ever seen leap out of a giant pile of data ever. And it was that the beginning of these winning streaks and the end of these winning streaks correspond, in some cases, to the day with the arrival and departure of one player. 
And that player was, in every single case, the leader of the team or the captain. This is Jeff Klein, and you're listening to highlights from our 2018 Leadership Conference held right here at the Wharton School on the University of Pennsylvania campus. We're listening to Sam Walker talk about how all great sports teams had great captains, all of whom share seven traits. The first one is kind of a mashup of the first uh, of a few of these. It's um, relentlessness and toughness uh, combined with ironclad emotional control. So let me take that piece by piece. So the first piece of that is relentlessness, right? So it's probably not that surprising that the captains of the greatest teams in sports history were dogged people who performed in a very uh, uh, energetic way, right? But these people really took this to extremes. I can't really do it justice, but I did uh, take this, give you a little video here of Carlos Puyol, the great captain of the great Barcelona team, um, who was famous for this. Uh, Puyol played with one speed, which was flat out. I mean, he did not, it didn't matter if they were up by 10 points, down by by. Uh, by 10 goals or down, or down by 8. I mean, he was playing with the same intensity. He practiced and, and trained with the same intensity. And um, hang on, that's not right. I want to play a little bit of a video of him in action. So it was that kind of relentless intensity on the field that you saw over and over again with these captains. They just absolutely, there was no chill day. There was no day off. Um, they would, would do anything they could do on the field to win, including taking a screamer to the face. Now, I wanna, this is my favorite thing. So Puyol's got a cut on his forehead from a head clash, and this is the team physician who's got the staple gun. So he stapled his head, and look at him. Put me back in! And here's some teammates that are celebrating. He's like, stop, get, stop it. Um, anyway, he was all business on the field. All business on the field, and that's... That's an example of this. They all had this quality, this kind of relentlessness. So, um, okay, toughness. Now, I, can't, I cannot really give you a clear picture of what I'm talking about here. Uh, you you kinda, kinda gotta read the book. Uh, toughness was, is something that's hard for leaders to display because you kinda need the right moment. But uh, here's a partial list of some of the injuries that these captains played through. A broken toe, a broken foot, a fractured skull, a heart attack, uh, and one of them played nine days after, uh, in a world championships, nine days after giving birth. So uh, they're a tough crew. Now this is Buck Shelford, and this is the story I want to use as an example. Buck Shelford was the captain of the New Zealand All Blacks, which if you don't know anything about them, are the greatest rugby team in the world from this tiny country. Yes, yes, as you know, right? The only team to be on this list twice, by the way, uh, for two different achievements. But, uh, and you may know the Buck Shelford story, so please don't, uh, you maybe you should spoil it. But anyway, uh, this is Buck Shelford. And Buck Shelford was, is, uh, in 1986, he was playing his, his debut with the All Blacks, right? And he, uh, he played two matches in France. And in the first match, the French just, I mean, the New Zealand just destroyed the French. I mean, just humiliated them on home turf. So the second match, the French were determined to win. I mean, they were going to do anything it takes, anything it took to win this match. And what they wanted to do was get rid of Shelford. They wanted to take him out of the game. So during the course of this match, uh, he lost three teeth. He just spat them out and kept playing. Uh, he got sucker punched in the face, didn't take the bait, just kept going. Uh, and there were two occasions where he was knocked unconscious. The second one uh, was late in the match, and he was so disoriented, had no idea where he was or what he was doing there, so they took him out of the game finally. 
Uh, but the headline from this match was something that happened early in the second half. And uh, Shelford was trying to pull the ball away from a French player in the middle of the scrum, and the French player kicked him in the groin. And Shelford fell down on the turf and kind of rolled around. I mean, it took him a while to collect to get his win back, and he was okay. I mean, it hurt, but he kept playing. So uh, after the match, he's in the locker room, and he takes off his uniform, and his uh, teammates gasp. Uh, and there's no polite way to say this. Um, there was blood everywhere. Uh, he hadn't just been spiked by the French player, uh, or kicked by the French player, he was spiked. And the spikes of the French player's boot had ripped open his scrotum. And I'm sorry, this is, I, this is how it went down. Uh, <laughs> there, there was a very important piece of equipment that was dangling out of the breach, right? And it was a mess. Um, so as you can imagine, he became something of an overnight folk hero in New Zealand after Keys got out. <laughs> And he told me, you look, they took him upstairs, he got 16 stitches, everything works fine, no. <laughs> He's like, it's okay, so don't feel bad for this guy. But, um, but that gives you a sense of what I'm talking about in terms of toughness. And all of these, these great leaders of these dynastic teams had that um, level of commitment. Now what do you make of this? Like the, the only conclusion I could come up with was, like, these people are crazy. <laughs> like, what are you doing? This is sports, it's a game, right? What are you doing? And I thought this was nuts, but then I started to think about it, and I mentioned earlier, I mentioned the rope experiment and, and social loafing, right? Well, it turns out there's one antidote to social loafing, which scientists have found, and, and the antidote is that if you tell everyone in that group, doing that collective task together, if you tell them that one member of that group is putting in an extreme effort, is a high effort performer, then you know what happens? It's magic they all start to do better. In fact, in some studies, they will perform just as hard in the team setting as they did by themselves, only because they believe that one member of the team is giving it a, a really full-on effort. So when you think about relentlessness and toughness, what is the takeaway here? Well, you know what? It's contagious. It has a contagious effect on everyone, and it makes everyone work harder. It makes everyone tougher. It makes everyone more relentless. And you're, you're just pulling marginal gains out of your team by behaving this way. So the lesson for us, don't go to work with a fractured skull, okay, don't. <laughs> That's not the lesson. The lesson is, there's no day off. If you wanna be an elite leader, a great leader who sustains excellence, you gotta bring it every day. Sleeves rolled up, working as hard as you can. Because that shows people that, that how to do it and you're gonna get those marginal gains that you won't even know you're getting but you're gonna get them. All right, the last piece of this is emotional control. And here's Tom Brady again, and I'm bringing it back because I picked on him a little bit earlier. But uh, so scientists are a little, um, I mean, they've studied resilience, and they've studied how people handle negative emotions. And there's a little bad news in there because look, a lot of it has to do with your brain wiring. Just some people have brains that are, that are better at taking problems and setbacks and putting them aside and staying focused on a task and dealing with them later, right? Just some of us are better at that. There's a lot of research that suggests that mindfulness, meditation, experience, practice, we can get better and we can all improve. And I, there are some examples of, of captains in this book that have gotten much better at dealing with their emotions. 
Um, but for whatever reason, these captains did this in ways that astounded me. I mean, there's some examples in the book that um, I don't want to spoil, but uh, they had an incredible emotional control and an ability to turn emotions on and off and to set aside setbacks. And I want to talk about Tom Brady because the two seasons ago, you may remember he was uh, suspended four games by the NFL uh, for allegedly tampering with the footballs, right? I, I know their Patriots aren't really popular here. Um, but, uh, but whatever. So, uh, you know, that was humiliating for Tom Brady. And it was, it was really difficult. And he was very unhappy with the way the NFL handled the investigation. He was angry. So what happens? Well, he comes back from serving a suspension. And he plays one of his best seasons. And he leads his team into the playoffs and all the way to the Super Bowl. If you saw that Super Bowl, you'll never forget it because he came back to beat the Atlanta Falcons in the greatest comeback I've ever seen. I mean, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing with my own eyes. So this is his greatest season, I think it's safe to say. And now, we've, we, he did it despite all those distractions and all the problems that he had in early in the season. But what we didn't know is what we find out after the Super Bowl is over, we see his mother. And we find out that Tom Brady's mother had been diagnosed with cancer and was undergoing intensive chemotherapy that whole season. So on top of the whole deflate gate mess, he was dealing with his, his, his mother's medical issues. Now, why didn't we know about this? We didn't know about it because Tom Brady didn't say anything about it. He didn't bring it to the office, so to speak. He didn't, it wasn't an issue. He had that ability that all these cabins had to take a difficult emotional situation, put it away, put it aside, not neglect it, just put it aside. And when he was inside that team context, it was all business. It was all about that collective and making sure that he was doing his part. When he was outside, that's when he would deal with the emotions and the difficulty. But that's the kind of control you need. And I think there's a great lesson there for all of us, no matter what we do. You know, we all bring our problems to the office, right? I mean, it's natural and it's okay sometimes. But think about, if, what if you don't? What if you're going through something really wrenching and you set it aside and you throw yourself into your work? You know what happens? That's contagious too. Your team will see that. And you know what? Next time they're having a little like drama in their lives, maybe they're going to set it aside. Maybe they're going to do the same thing. Again, marginal gains that you don't even know are there. And emotional control is a great way to get it. Okay, the next one is carrying water. And uh, I, carrying water is something that also overturned my assumptions in a big way. I always thought that the leader of a team was on some level the person who makes the biggest contribution. I thought, you know, the star, look, even if they're not the designated leader, the person who is most important to the outcome, when that person speaks, people are gonna listen. They have natural gravity and weight, right? So I always thought that was the case. But what was amazing to me was how many of these captains were role players, support players. They were never the best athletes on the team. They were always sort of in the back, playing defense in a forward, in a rearward position. And I always went right to, to this person, went to Carla Overbeck, right? And that's the first person I wanted to look at. And the question you're asking is, who's Carla Overbeck, right? Well, you don't know who she is. You remember the team she was on, though. She was on this great 99 U.S. women's national team that won the World Cup with Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy and Brandi Chastain. Incredible team, great athletes, incredible personalities. You don't know Carla Overbeck, and there's a reason that you don't, because she didn't care if you knew who she was. In fact, she didn't even want you to know who she was. She had no interest. In fact, when they won the World Cup, they flew to Manhattan for a rally in Midtown Manhattan, and they were on Letterman. I mean, it was just like every person's dream celebration, right? Only one player didn't go, 
And guess who it was? It was Carla Overbeck. She didn't show. It's not that she was, she wished her teammates well. She was very happy for them that they were getting this star turning this attention. She wanted nothing to do with it. She, to her mind, the job was done. They'd won. They won the trophy. That's all she cared about. She didn't care about everything else that went around. And I said, well, Carla, what did you do that day that your teammates were, you know, having a parade? And she said, I did three loads of laundry. <laughs> you know, and not bitterly. That's just like, that's what I did, you know. So I didn't understand this. What I didn't understand was, okay, fine, humility. I mean, humility is great, right? And there's millions of books about humility. But how do you lead? How do you lead from that position, right? She was also a central defender, someone who played at the back, someone who laid the ball off the minute she got it. Never, I think she scored three goals in her entire career. She was never someone you would see in the highlights. She didn't make that obvious contribution, so how did she lead? Well, I called one of her former coaches and I said, explain Carla Overbeck to me and her leadership. And he said, here's Carla Overbeck leading. She said the team would go on these crazy road trips to Norway or Japan, flying in coach, and they would get there and they'd be exhausted. And they would all collapse on their hotel rooms in, on, in their beds. And you know, two minutes later, there'd be a little knock on the door, like, you know? And I answer the door, and it's Carla Overbeck. And Carla's got their bags, right? And she's got them from the bus, and she's bringing them to their rooms. And she's bringing them in, and she like, puts them down, goes out to get the next set for the next set of teammates. And I'm like, what? She carried the luggage? She's the captain of the team. She's carrying everyone's luggage for them, right? And he's like, yeah, that's what she did. I said, I don't know how that, that's not helping me, okay? I don't understand how that's leadership. That sounds like you know, you're, you're a, a, an employee of the team or something. So he said, no, she knew exactly what she was doing. She, under, she did lots of stuff like this, not just carrying the luggage. She trained, practiced harder than everyone. She did all kinds of things that were things that someone would only do if they were more committed to the collective result than their own uh, than their own achievements or their own well-being. And she did it so often that she was banking currency with her teammates. She was banking this currency with them. And she would spend that currency, but she spent it on the field. And the minute someone made a mistake and didn't seem to be in the game, she was on them, goading them, you know, challenging them to get better. The minute they did something great, she was also there, you know, encouraging them, you know, making sure that, that they were... Uh, felt appreciated. And here's the thing, her teammates understood where Carla Overbeck was coming from. They understood that she was speaking from a place of, I care about the team, not myself. So her words had incredible weight and her motivation on the field and everything she said absolutely was transfixing and had a huge impact on that team. It turned her into the engine that made that team great. And you know, even her style of playing from the back was interesting because what I've seen about these captains, is, especially in soccer, in that position, is that she would distribute the ball so quickly and never try to do anything flashy that she created dependency you know, with her teammates who wanted those passes, needed that passes, they wanted her approval. She also was able to kind of control the tactics and tempo of the, of the, of the match from that position by distributing the ball. So this is a very counterintuitive form of command. But don't, make no mistake, it is a way of leading. It's a way of leading from the back that we do not appreciate. So the message for all of us you know, who are in teams and business, I'm sorry, but you're not going to get in the paper if you're doing it right. You know, you're not on the magazine cover because the stuff that you're doing is quiet. It's behind the scenes. It's not, you're not the person out front. You're doing the grunt work, the thankless grunt work. 
You're running into that burning building when no one else will. And that's what it takes. It's not for everybody. Most people want more glory and public appreciation, but Carla Overbeck didn't even need it. And you know what? She's the greatest captain in women's soccer history. So you, you know, make your pick. What's it going to be? That's the choice. Okay, the second thing, principal dissent. Okay, so conflict inside teams is something that I think a lot of researchers look at with skepticism. They think conflict is really dangerous and often negative, right? And in sports, this is doubly true because I think sports teams really try to get rid of people to create uh, problems. Locker room lawyers, you know, clubhouse cancers, right? They get rid of them. Uh, now, the thing that I didn't understand about these captains was how how could they push back so reflexively on little things, big things, everything, all the time? How did they manage to, um, uh, to keep their teams unified? How, how did this work? So what I discovered in looking at the research is that there are really two kinds of conflict. There, there are different kinds of conflict, and we often have trouble distinguishing between them. And the first kind of conflict that we see that we all recognize is called personal conflict. And that is when the source of an argument or discussion is really, I don't like you. You know, I hate you. And whatever is coming out of that is like an ego-based uh, thing. That is toxic. 100% end of story, toxic. It will destroy a team every time. But there's another kind of conflict that might look really heated and look like personal conflict in some ways, but it's not. And it's called task conflict. And that's when the source of the conflict is, it's about how the team is going about its business and, and how the team can be better. It's not personal. It might get heated, but it's really about process. And those are very different and distinct things. And I think what I was having trouble doing is separating the two and being able to distinguish them. And I want to give you an example of how hard this can be. And this example is, is this fellow right here, uh, whose name is Valery Vasiliev. And, Vasiliev was the captain of the great Soviet Red Army hockey team in the 1980s. Now, there's only one reason that any of you remember the Soviet hockey team in the 1980s, and that was Lake Placid uh, when they lost to this group of American amateurs uh, in what's been known as the Miracle on Ice. One of the greatest upsets in sports history, arguably the biggest humiliation the Kremlin endured during the entire Cold War. Um, anyway. What you don't know is what happened afterwards. So immediately after this loss, the coach of this team, his name was Viktor Tikhonov, he called all the players into, um, uh, into, the, into the locker room and he said, listen, this is a collective disaster. We, we all contributed to this and the story we're gonna tell in Moscow when we get home is that we lost as a team, right? So after that, they get on the plane, they're flying to Moscow, and Tikhonov is sitting in first class with his assistant coaches and a bunch of Politburo apparatchik types, and he's telling a completely different story. He's saying, okay, this guy was terrible. He cost us the game. This guy, we gotta get rid of him, he's awful. I mean, he was doing exactly what he said he wouldn't do, which is singling out individual players, all right? Well, unbeknownst to him, 15 feet away in the cockpit, talking to the pilots is this guy, Valery Vasiliev. And he's heard every word his coach said, and he's not happy about it, right? Okay, so like, put yourself in his shoes. It's a Soviet Union, height of the Cold War. They can throw you in the gulag for spitting your gum on the sidewalk, right? What would you do in that situation? Well, Vasiliev knew exactly what he was gonna do. He charged out of the cockpit. He grabbed his coach with both hands by the neck 
and started shaking him violently. And he said, I will throw you off this plane right now if you don't take it back. So this story didn't make the papers the next day. It didn't Pravda didn't run with it, right? I had, to, I had to drag it out of his teammates to get the full story. But so they took him back to the, they restrained him, they took him back to the, to the cabin and they landed in Moscow. And, Really, no one knew what was going to happen to this guy. Anything was possible, right? This was an incredible act of insubordination. Um, so two days later, they had practice. And to the incredible astonishment of his teammates, in comes Vasiliev. He's like, hey, coach. Hey, guys. He sits down, puts on his skates, grabs a stick, goes out on the ice, and starts to go to work, right? Like nothing happened. So what's really amazing about this was Everybody on this team, from that moment on, understood what he was all about. He was, they had a vote for the new captain a few weeks later, and he was the unanimous choice. And the Kremlin and the coach let this stand. They all understood where he was coming from. Um, and I realized that this is a classic case of something that looks like the negative kind of conflict that you would get rid of someone for, but this was pure task conflict, right? This was, this team was in a vulnerable place. It had suffered its greatest humiliation. It could have just fallen apart right there. But he wanted to hold it together. So what he did looked like a hostile personal act, but it was really about holding that team together in a vulnerable moment. And guess what? They came back from that loss, and in their first match they played Sweden, in Sweden, and beat them 13 to 1. Then they went and played a group of NHL all-stars, including Wayne Gretzky, Bobby Orr, Guy Lafleur, and the greatest NHL all-star team ever assembled, and beat them eight to one. They were the greatest team for four years that ever put skates on, period, ever, anywhere in the world. And it started the moment that, that Vasiliev had that incredible, courageous act of dissent. So I'm not correlating them. I mean, there's more to it than that, obviously. But here's the lesson. You know what? You want to be an elite leader? I got bad news. It's, it's, it's hard. It takes courage. There are real consequences for your career. And in your, for your life, in this case, it's not easy. It's a commitment. But if you want to be great, and you want to sustain that greatness for a long time, that's what it takes. Not for everyone, but that's what it's going to take. OK, the last one is practical communication. And, uh, this is the basis of um, the biggest stunner for me of all, which think about all the sports movies you've seen and, um, and what, uh, what you learned in those sports movies. And uh, if someone had to give a big, uh, had to motivate a team before a big match, what did they do? They give a speech, right? Big speech, like incredible speech. Well, that's what I thought, right? But to my incredible surprise, none of these captains gave speeches. I mean, they would talk to the group once in a while, but some of them didn't do it at all. They, would, they thought it was corny to address the group. They never said anything to the group as a whole. They didn't give speeches. They didn't want to. So how can this be? How can you lead a team? How do you motivate and communicate with a team if you don't give speeches in big moments, right? Well, obviously, I'm going to look at this guy. And this is Tim Duncan, right? So if you know who Tim Duncan is, he was the captain of, of the San Antonio Spurs who won five NBA titles, highest long-term winning percentage for any NBA team, 19 straight appearances in the playoffs. I mean, that's a record no one will ever touch. And if you've ever seen Tim Duncan given an interview, you know that he has the personality of a vacuum cleaner, right? 
I mean, I'm not kidding. Like, he's no emotions. He's, he's a monotone. He, he's, he looks like he's getting a colonoscopy, you know? I mean, he's got no charisma. The big knock on him was that he was boring, right? So, okay, how did this guy do it? How did he communicate with his teammates? Well, I spent a lot of time watching this team play and watching practice and watching Tim Duncan. And I have a little bit of a video. I noticed that he actually does talk. Uh, he's always communicating. <laughs> he, he talks a lot inside the context of that team. But it's not the way you think. He doesn't talk to the group. He's always working the perimeter of the floor. He's always talking to one person very intently, individually, in the moment. And he listens as much as he talks. And he uses his eyes, extreme eye contact with people, to, to re-emphasize his points. He has maybe two or three facial expressions. But you know, <laughs> but you know what he's feeling. He leaves no doubt about it. So, it's this weird kind of communication pattern I hadn't really considered before. And a lot of studies and research have shown that business teams are the same. That in great business teams, it's not the talent level or the experience level of the people there. It is the presence of someone who does exactly that. Works the perimeters, talking to everyone, looking for problems, dealing with things in the moment, listening and talking, having intense one-on-one -on -one interactions. And uh, that that's person's called a charismatic connector. So that's the first time the word charismatic has ever been used in a sentence with Tim Duncan. But that's, that's the secret to, to team communication. That's the only thing. And all these captains did this sort of thing. That was author Sam Walker, an editor at the Wall Street Journal and author of the book he was just talking about, The Captain's Class. I'm Jeff Klein. You've been listening to a special presentation of Leadership in Action. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.